electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. New Year's hangover, the Dow falling nearly 300 points today. The Dow, the NASDAQ now off close to 3% in two sessions, and small caps getting hit hard, too. Is this the start of the sell-off so many have been predicting? We'll debate that. Plus, drama at Disney. A couple new players joining the boardroom battle, and they're backing Bob Iger against Triumph Nelson Pelt. Should investors cheer or jeer this move? And later, could fattened up pharma stocks fuel a biotech buying spree? A buzzkill on SoFi after a strong finish to 2023 and T-Mobile's hitting new highs again. How are they dialing up these gains? I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, Courtney Garcia and Guy Adami. We start off with a crude awakening in the energy sector. WTI jumping more than 3% for their best day since mid-November. The move coming after the U.S. warned Houthi militants against further attacks in the Red Sea. OPEC also pledging to maintain its support of oil prices. The rise in crude helping the energy stocks rally the sector the best performer today, accounting for nine of the top 11 stocks in the S&P 500. So is this sector, which lagged the broader markets in 2023, about to get its moment in the sun? Guy, what do you think? What are they, when you put letters together, what's acronyms. those Acronyms. Thank you, Tim. Words. Words. <laughs> acronyms. Start, you're right. It's a great place to start. And we're going we're gonna to do that again this year. Yes, I can't wait. But last year. What was year, her name? Huh? What was her name? Who? Dawn. That was years ago, oh. Tim. <laughs> I mean, we went ago. from hope to dawn. Last year was mojo. Okay. Energy is a, right. And listen, last year, ups and downs. I'm convinced, again, this year it's going to have its day in the sun. And you look at XLE, for example. It has sold off, but not nearly to the magnitude that one would have thought, given the fact that all these high-growth tech stocks have done so well at the end of last year. XLE hangs in there. There are energy names making all-time highs. Marathon Petroleum, we've talked about that many times. PSX, for example, as well. Devon's getting off the mat here. And even Valero Refiner is at a decent couple weeks. So yes is the answer to the question. I think energy stocks are going to be fine this year. You had a prediction for WTI, which I think was sort of not, not shocking, but surprising to the downside, right? Yeah, when it was trading above 120. I said 65. Now, then I thought it would trade back up. It would be sort of limited to cap on a, a par, which is 100. Um, I, the issue I have with energy stocks is that even if you look at ExxonMobil or if you look at Chevron, the companies that they took out, their company and the acquiree's stock haven't really been performing. But I get, I get Guy's point. If you look at it on a chart, they all do seem as if they want to bounce and go higher. The problem I also have is that geopolitical tension you would have seen crude up a lot more dramatically in the past had we ever had any of these events. And they seem to be muted within the mar- market. <clears throat> and because there's a supply-demand dynamic also going on, there's weakness in China that people are concerned about, Tim. But you're on board energy stocks. I'm on board. I also think that we've already seen in the first two days of, of 2024. By the way, happy New Year, Happy New Year, Guy. Guy. Yeah, it's nice. Again? Um, Why not? It's what we do for Guy. Especially. When are you um, allowed to say it, Till? Well, February. This, yeah. February. Is yeah. that it? Yeah, keep please, saying it. Feb- please continue February, to please. wish Guy a happy new year every single day. <laughs> but uh, going into 24, there were 
a handful of sectors that I think we're seeing as favorites in terms of where you're going to see allocation and you're going to see actually, and, and you know, healthcare, pharma, uh, and energy. And why? Because the companies, I think, on valuation, and the, be clear, energy companies always trade cheap to the S&P, but they're trading at a two-standard deviation relative to themselves to the S&P, cheap to the S&P, at a time when I do think OPEC and OPEC Plus have enough coordination that they're, they, look, they are concerned about global macro. And I think that's the bigger issue here. And it's right to point out that Energy and oil stocks will underperform in an environment where people are fearful of recession. But I do think you've got a very strong uh, valuation support floor. And I think you've got companies that are paying big dividends. And I think that's interesting. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I'm also on board with energy. And I think what you're starting to see, or we started to actually see in October, is this rotation, the broadening out in the markets. I think that's only continued so far into 2024. Today, you're seeing the markets sell off. The things that are doing the best are those things that are the largest in the value sector. So you're looking at pharmaceuticals, energy. You're starting to see that rotation into those things. So when you look at the largest eight companies in the SP 500, they're still very expensive, but strip those out and the rest of the markets are trading about a forward P of 17, which isn't cheap, but is still attractive. And I think that's what people are doing is looking into the other areas of the markets right now, energy being one of those big ones. I guess the question is, you know, what we're seeing, at least for the first couple of days and in part of last year, is a mean reversion. Yes. Uh, and is energy just swept up in this mean reversion? And will this mean reversion last or do we still go back to the old? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that's exactly it's an, a reallocation in energy stocks. So the first couple of days, take it with a grain of salt. With that said, I'm not sure that the price accrued makes all that much difference within reason. You know, if we go down to $50, we'll have a much different conversation. I don't think it's going there. If we go to 110, different conversation. But we stay between 70 and 80 like we have for quite some time. I think these stocks, given their balance sheets, Tim's talked about this forever, given the leverage that they have and given just they run things better, then on top of which, think about the M&A Steve just talked about. Then you think about a Warren Buffett that's been buying Occidental up to 27%, understanding that stock specific. But he sees something in the space. So I think energy is underappreciated here, and I think it can go higher in this environment. I guess the, all, the only other thing that would be, go on supply-demand as, as a headwind is that we've never produced more uh, uh, barrels per oil per day in the U.S. as we're producing now. So we're over 13 million barrels per day, which is good for security of the country and it's good for the country. So maybe that would put a lid on the on the price per barrel of oil. I'm not sure how it's going to react with the price of the equities. But in terms of the market backdrop for, for energy to work, do you also have to believe that the other sectors that were, you know, badly beaten last year. Let's say healthcare. You like yes. healthcare, for instance. That that's all part of this trade. It's not just an energy-specific bullish. I, I realize it's easy to say two days into the year with Apple down almost eight percent, at least from whatever high it hit somewhere towards the end of December. But um, I do think that the days of thirty percent of the Mag Seven are behind us. It's not going to happen overnight. But I think the broadening of the real economy and the investment across value, and and, and clearly it, for the market to work, you need some kind of a barbell where you have the high growth companies and you have these names, but you also have the inclusion of, of healthcare uh, and pharma and utilities and even REITs. So places where I, like, I don't love real estate, but I, I love how cheap REITs are here. And I, I think they were badly beaten up last year, uh, as were utilities. So that's part of the energy story. That's part of the market story. Yeah, and I think seeing some sort of a pullback here, we've all said is probably normal to see at some point. And you've looked at investor sentiment surveys, and they've been overly optimistic now for a couple of weeks. Um, so I think some sort of pullback, I think, is normal. I'm, it's nothing I'm overly concerned about. But I think, to your point, it is a lot of a rotation. I think it's going to continue. I don't think this is going to be the end of that story. What did Steve Eisman say yesterday? Steve Eisman of Newberger Bourbon. Mm. And, and well-dressed. 
well-dressed. He said think Yiddish. Think Yiddish and, 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 and dress British. A yeah. Great quote. He's Guy like, thinks skittish and doesn't dress British. Well, you know, so, anyway. I mean, Getting yes. Getting back to the markets. <laughs> Sorry. I was going to say he said people are too friggin' bullish. That's what he said. That was his quote. Yeah, too optimistic yesterday. coming yeah. in this year the same way probably last year people were too pessimistic going into the yeah. year. And Steve, he simplifies it to a point where I think people understand. He also is not overly concerned about some of the things that have concerned me. But his point was going into the year, people might have been over their skis a bit. Meantime, we've been talking about this, but it has been another tough day for the markets. Uh, the Nasdaq dropping more than a 1% a day after seeing its worst daily performance in almost three months. The Dow falling over 280 points. The S&P closing lower as well. This is the Fed minutes from the last meeting failed to create market optimism over the timing of likely rate hikes, uh, cuts, excuse me. CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman's got more. Um, Steve, it seemed more hawkish than I think uh, a lot of people expected. Yeah, that's my take, uh, Melissa, the minutes to the meeting. Remember, they were closely watched for what they might say about how quickly and how deeply the Fed would cut rates this year. Well, they didn't provide much information on either. As a result, they did lean, I think, somewhat hawkish as they failed to back up the market's aggressive view on rate cuts this year. The committee saw inflation risk as more balanced. That was good. Also on the dovish side, the minute said policy was at or near the peak and the projection showed most agreed a lower target range would be appropriate in 2024. But there was a high level of uncertainty around those projections to the point where officials said further rate hikes could be needed or the Fed might have to hold on to the current rate path longer than expected. Krishna Guha of Evercore ISI writes, our impression is the committee wanted to clarify it does not see rate cuts as imminent and lean against the March cut specifically while retaining wide policy optionality. None of this says the market is wrong to predict six rate cuts beginning in March. Just the committee isn't there at this time. And as of the December meeting, the average official, of course, only saw three cuts, Melissa. I thought it was interesting also the commentary, um, basically a nod to what has happened to financial conditions up to that meeting, um, that they had eased significantly and that they would, in fact, change their view if circumstances warranted. And those circumstances could be um, that financial t- conditions got, got easier and so assets would go higher. And we've I, seen I, that. I think that's right. That was one of the uh, uh, things that they mentioned when they talked about upside risk to inflation uh, is that. Uh, financial conditions had eased, and that created the possibility that uh, you could have upside inflation risk. I I think the Fed was very measured in pushing back against the market here. I think the message that I get is if you all want to trade six rate cuts this year, go ahead and do it, but do it on your own recognizance. Don't come back to either the Fed statement or the Fed minutes here and say, oh, we did it because the Fed told us that's the case. That's not what they're saying. And so if you do it, you trade it, you own it. Hey, Steve, so back to financial conditions, though, one of the things that's fascinating to me is that despite all of the the cuts over the last year and a half, and even if we paused, uh, that reserve balances held at the Fed rose $450 billion last year. And if you look at the correlation to that uh, and the S&P, they're totally in lockstep. Um, in other words, liquidity is alive and well, and for banks especially. can you? T- it's a phenomenon that's hard to explain in this environment. And if anyone was set up to do that, well, it's you. Well, I mean, reserve balances, uh, the Fed has been indeed reducing its balance sheet. Reserve balances are down, I think, um, about a trillion to from the peak. 
The, the trouble, Tim, is there's this notion, and I don't know how much time we have. I hope it doesn't take very long. But this idea of a binding level of reserves, and this is, is that, that there was a lot of froth at the top of the reserves on the Fed's balance sheet to the point where eliminating it did not create much of a liquidity squeeze at all. There is some sense that sometime this year, Tim, we get to that point, perhaps when the whole overnight repo facility is liquidated, that may be a point where you start cutting into actual bank reserves and creating something of a liquidity drain out there that could be difficult or more challenging for markets. It is worth noting that the minutes today did talk about, I guess the best way to put it is, the Fed possibly thinking about the possibility of thinking about how they might communicate ending quantitative tightening maybe this year. All right, Steve, we've got to leave it there. Thank you, Steve okay. Leisman. Sure. We've got a news alert we want to get to on AbbVie. Shares are dropping after hours. Bertha Coombs got the details. Bertha. Melissa, CVS is taking AbbVie's Humira off of its approved drug lists on commercial health plants. CVS Caremark, which is the nation's second largest pharmacy benefits manager, will favor biosimilars instead, including Cordavis, its own version of the arthritis and psoriasis treatment, which it launched a few months ago with Sandoz. With the introduction of biosimilars in the U.S. this year, Humira maker AbbVie saw sales of that treatment fall about 36 percent year over year in its most recent quarter, which was actually less of a fall than expected. A CVS spokesman says people on its commercial plans could see savings of 50 percent over brand name Humira. This will start on April 1st this year. Bertha, just a quick question. Biosimilars is different from generic is that correct? And it, so this it is, is sort, sort of, like of a, the idea of a generic version of these more complicated drugs, uh, in this case to treat autoimmune diseases. They've had the biosimilars in Europe for a few years, it got put off here in this country until this year. So we've seen a number of the PBMs adopt the biosimilars, but apparently Humira and AbbVie, AbbVie has really negotiated to keep its drug on formulary, so they haven't caught on and really dented its share just yet. This could be the beginning. So maybe not a patent cliff quite, but uh, a patent drop here. Bertha, thank you. Bertha Coombs uh, with that news on AbbVie. Uh, let's get back to the Fed here. For more on these minutes and where yields are going, let's bring in Wall Street forecaster Jim Bianco. He runs Bianco Research. Um, Jim, last time we talked, you, you think rates are going higher, 5.5%. You still stand by that. Was there anything out of the minutes that you thought was, was interesting, especially considering we had a lot of Fed speak after that Fed meeting, um, which led the markets to really believe that six rate cuts were happening next year? Yeah, no, the, I thought that Steve did a good job, that the minutes came in a little bit more hawkish or we might say a little bit more balanced than people had expected, that it wasn't the type of minutes you would have heard if the Fed was getting ready to cut six times uh, this year. And so I think uh, on balance, it was suggesting that the Fed might be a little, if I could use the word, stickier in cutting rates. I mean, it doesn't mean they won't cut rates. It's just it might not be as aggressive as everybody says. To your first question, yeah. I've been arguing for many, many months that I think that the 10-year yield could go to 5.5%. That has not been working for the last few months. But I also see an economy that's doing okay. And I see inflation that might, to use the word again, sticky, around 3%. And so I'm going to stick with that, that I think that you know before 2024 is out and probably towards the middle of the year, we might see new highs in yields and maybe closer to 5.5%. 
Jim, what is it on the back of you know, inflation reemerging or the economy suddenly surging and reaccelerating to the upside? What does that move higher in yields look like? No soft landing. I, I don't think we're having a soft landing. And if I was to stick with the metaphor, I think we're having a no landing. I think that the economy is doing what it does 90% of the time. It is continuing to expand at trend, which about 2.5% growth, or maybe a little bit better. So 2.5% growth. If inflation is bottoming at around 3%, which is roughly where we are now, because demand is going to hold in, you add the two together, you get 5.5%. And that's where I come up with 5.5% for the yield, that that's nominal GDP, that you know the 10-year yield should approximate where nominal GDP is. So where I'm differing from Wall Street's consensus is I don't think we're going to see a slowdown. I don't think we're going to see a soft landing. I think we're just going to continue to see trend growth or maybe a little bit better than trend growth. And that's basically what we saw in 2023. So, Jim, I think your five and a half was close enough for a win. I don't think we're getting back up there, but I do see some moving averages that can get me. The 100 day moving average in 10 years, 439. The 200 day is a little bit over 4 percent. But the, the question I have to ask is where you started there with CPI. We went from 9% down to 3%, PCE running with a two-handle on it. Isn't this good enough when you see inflation drop so fast? That could be the reason why they're cutting, not because the economy is in any danger? Well, first of all, that PCE at 2% is, is only on a six-month annualized basis for core PCE. So there's many measures, and that's the lowest measure you can get. The Fed has made it very clear that there is no close enough. There is, we are going to get it back to 2%. There is 65% of the country that lives paycheck to paycheck. That prices are 20% higher than they were four years ago. And that we have to slow dramatically this rise in inflation. And 3% is not, this is not horseshoes or hand grenades. This is 3% is not close enough that they have to continue to uh, lean on the economy to get it all the way down to two. Now they're hoping they've done enough that it's on its way. But if it turns out to be sticky, uh, you know, they might be a little bit more hesitant to cut rates as much as people think. So I do think that the inflation rate is key to this forecast, but I also think that we have not yet seen the numbers that suggest that we're really on our on that so-called last mile. Remember, year-over-year core inflation is 4% right now, and year-over-year headline inflation is 3%, and largely because of oil being depressed. What's the timing of your forecast, Jim? In other words, you see rates, the 10-year yield going to 5.5%, but you still see three rate cuts. So do we hit 5.5% and then we see cuts kick in and so then we see the yields back off? Or I'm just trying to figure out what, what you're foreseeing in terms of you know, trying to extrapolate this into how the markets trade this year. So remember, the yield curve is inverted and it's been inverted now for about 15 months. And that is an extraordinarily long time for the yield curve to be inverted, meaning short rates are higher than long rates. So if the Fed wants to cut once or twice, uh, maybe three times, you know, and bring the funds rate down into high fours and the 10 year yield goes to five and a half. That's a positive 75 basis point yield curve. So really what we're talking about is a normalization of the yield curve during the year. That is that in and of itself to say, well, the yield curve will normalize is not an unusual thing. What might be a little bit unusual about it is it would normalize in an environment of rising rates. It usually normalizes with rates falling. Uh, This one might be, you know, where I'm talking about the long end of the yield curve, where rates are going up, 
that might normalize the curve. So keep in mind that what that is implying is that the yield curve goes positive again. Oh, okay. I would think that's uh, a good thing, especially for banks, Jim. Would you agree? It, yeah, I mean, it can be a good thing for banks and can, it can be a good thing for, um, uh, you know, for lenders because their cost of uh, loans would go up. And it cannot, it may not necessarily be a bad thing for the economy because more long-term interest rates are what lending is tied to. Mm -hmm. And really what I'm also implying in this forecast is I don't think the economy's hurt by 5% interest rates. I don't think the economy's really hurt by seven or maybe high sevens mortgages. It's certainly not helped by it, but it's not, you know, it's not the old line that the Fed raised rates till something broke. I don't think something is broken because of these rates. And I think that's the assumption a lot of people are using. We broke something. We went too high in interest rates. That's why we're going to have to come down and we have to worry about a recession. I don't think we did. And that's why I think we could go back and revisit those levels. All right, Jim, thank you. Jim Bianco, Bianco Research. And I think that's sort of what you would think, you would assume if you see the headline, 5.5% is what Jim Bianco sees 10-year yields going to this year, that something will break. That that means that stocks won't rise. It's, it's extraordinary based upon history and it's extraordinary based upon Fed rate hike um, processes that, that something doesn't break, um, especially after a move from zero to five, you know, five and a quarter. And, and if you think about the moves in Volcker's, the Volcker Fed back in the 80s, rates started at 12 and a half uh, and they went from there. So I, I just think, uh, you know, the other part of today's macro, though, was that you had this jolt status. So this job openings uh, and, and it gave you a sense that if you want to take a moment in time and one data point does not do it on job. But um, the Fed's really executing on their mandate here. You, you basically have job openings back to where they were in, in March of 2017. You have the, the quit rate coming down. People are less confident in their ability to go secure a higher paying job. And this is all what the market wants. Yeah, and I think the, the whole conversation here is how many cuts we're having, right? Is it going to be six cuts? Is it going to be three cuts? I think most of the consensus here is we are going to have some sort of cuts. The jolts and the manufacturing data, I do think, supports that. And I think as you're looking into your 2024 playbook, that is what you want to look at is likely rates are going to come down. How quickly they come down or how fast they come down is the argument. But then coming down, I would say, is generally the consensus. And that's, I think, what you want to focus on is the overall theme here. Coming up, the latest from Disney's board battle, the media giant getting some activist support as the board seat brawl continues. What the backing means for Nelson Peltz in this proxy battle, the details next. Plus, cannabis cruising higher today. Potsocks getting a bump after reports that marijuana classification may be under review. What it could mean for the budding industry. Wow, so much. So funny. This is Fast Money with Melissa Lee right here on CNBC. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link 
with your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com, that's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Disney shares slightly higher today after the company won the support of activist hedge funds Value Act and Blackwell's Capital to back its board nominees. Value Act will support Disney's picks at the upcoming shareholder meeting and has agreed to share information and consult with the firm on strategic matters. This comes as the entertainment giant faces a challenge from activist investor Nelson Peltz. Um, I thought what was interesting was that Blackwell's also sort of criticized uh, Disney's Disney and Bob Iger for getting the support of Value Act and saying, you know, locking in that support because they nominated uh, an alternative sort of slate. What do you how do you feel as a well, shareholder? Look, a little shake up in the in the comfort zone on Disney yeah. is not a bad thing. I mean, having Bob Iger back is really important for the company. He's the right man for the job. But but I, I think there's been some sense of, OK, then, you know, I'm going to do this my way. And, and Disney, uh, my way, as it's been for the last five years, um, has been the stock doing zero. Um, outside of some excitement around streaming, which has been less than profitable. I'm a Disney shareholder. I'm frustrated. Uh, but I, I like the stock. I, I mean, I have to say I, I like the valuation. I think the core business is, is enough to give me almost streaming for free. Depends how you want to look at it. But um, I like Disney here. It almost feels value trappish at mm, this point. Uh, I mean, it's, it's up 2% or so over the past 12 months. Yeah. Uh, it's a tough, it's been a tough ride here. for Yeah, but it's... But, and I, well, there's a huge caveat here, there's a very good chance that that last quarter was sort of the trough quarter for the foreseeable future. We thought from that quarter could trade to 98, I think got 95 and change, has pulled back. They report, I want to say, the first week of February. I, you know, I am with Tim on this one. I haven't loved it in a while, but I think that last quarter might have been sort of the kitchen sink quarter where people come back a year from now say that was your opportunity to buy Disney. I don't, I don't know if you could have a, a, a trough without this succession plan. I think that's the that's what we're looking for. And everyone loves Iger so much that he was supposed to be the adult in the room coming back to get it reorganized. And that really hasn't taken place. Other than that pop off the pandemic low, the stock is not holding. It's entered into a new declining trend line. So I think there's got to be a, a couple of questions that need to be answered. Parks are definitely the tailwind in the story. Entertainment is the weakness, and they have to figure out what's going to happen when there's a new CEO at the helm. Do you like Disney? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really been underappreciated here. And I do think the more that they get away from linear TV and then more they do get into um, their direct-to-consumer with their content, I think it's going to benefit them. And I agree. I don't think they're there yet. Um, but I think you want to get into that beforehand. And I think it, it looks very attractive here. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Marijuana stocks burning higher. The headlines that got these names moving and the big change that could be coming for the industry. Plus, back to the glory days for biotech. One top analyst has a list of potential M&A targets in the spaces. We dig into the names primed for the picking in 2024. You're watching Fast Money live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Pot stocks burning higher today following a report that the DEA told House lawmakers it is reviewing marijuana status as a Schedule One drug. It marks the agency's most public comments on its review process to date. A spokesperson confirming to CNBC, quote, DEA has a final authority to schedule or reschedule a drug under the Controlled Substances Act and that the agency will now initiate its review sounds like we've heard this before, Tim, and yet the stocks were higher. Yeah, I mean, as the guy who runs the cannabis ETF, yet I'm the one that's so not terribly impressed by this news, maybe because we've heard so much so many times, both out of Washington. But let's understand the nuance here. Uh, The nuance also that basically this is uh, within the hands of the administration. So the DEA, who's who's, you know, whose godfather essentially was, you know, assigned by Biden. This is a Biden administration controlled dynamic. You don't necessarily need uh, a Senate or a House. And the House now, which is really which used to be the friend to the cannabis industry, is now probably going to be the most difficult part to getting any legislation through. To be understood, the, the, the reason why this news is so important is when the DEA, and I think it is when, it's just about what timing um, actually reschedules cannabis down from level from schedule one, probably to schedule three. It changes the free cash flow dynamics for the entire industry. And it probably then gets some fall through from some other dominoes, including, I think, banking and dynamics that are not necessarily related. This is more important to the companies in the space right now, especially the big ones who have huge tax bills every year. And I think this would be a game changer. And I think the industry, you can just tell by the way the market rallied today, and I'll footnote my friend. Jason Wilde, who said this to me, he's the chairman of one of the larger companies, is also a hedge fund manager. And his view on the market's reaction to news like this that's already out there is something along the lines of, well, if they're going to do this on news we already knew, wait till this news comes out. And I agree with that. I think this will be big news when it happens. We've heard so many times from D.C. about something. Is there an election year dynamic to all of this, do you think? Well, I think the election year dynamic is if if this stuff doesn't get done soon, I think it's going to get lost in some other stuff. So I think the timing on this, and again, it's over 100 days since at least I believe this news was already out there and they've had a chance to opine. I think they're not just looking at it now. I think they've already been looking at it. One of the publicly traded companies sort of at the forefront years ago was Constellation Brands made an all time high in July, pulled back. They report on the 5th, which I guess is Friday of this week. So keep an eye on that. The pullback, we've seen pullbacks in the stock of this magnitude a number of different times over the last couple of years. This is one to watch for sure. Coming up, could biotech be heading back to its glory days? One analyst laying out some top picks in the space. As M&A action comes into focus, we'll dig into the names that could give your portfolio a bio bump. Next, plus two stock moves catching our eyes, a SoFi slump and one cellular stock hitting a new record. How to trade both the names when Fast Money returns. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks tumbling into the close. The Dow dropping 284 points. The S&P down eight tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq leading to the losses down more than one percent. Its fourth negative session in a row. All three indices on pace to snap nine-week winning streaks. Crypto, meantime, pulling back today. Bitcoin down more than four percent after passing $45,000 yesterday. Investors still awaiting potential SEC approval of a spot Bitcoin ETF, which is expected to be decided in the coming days. And some stocks bucking today's downtrend with eight-day winning streaks, McKesson, J&J, Coca-Cola, and Assurance, all in that group. 
Meantime, a volatile start to the year for the biotech space after a rough 2023 ended with an $18 billion spending spree by Bristol-Myers, and there may be more M&A ahead. Guggenheim saying in a note today that it feels like biotech is back to its glory days, expecting much more wheeling and dealing to come in 2024. Alongside more consistent performance, the firm naming several drug developers, including Caballetta, Bio, and Celdex Therapeutics, who could be right for acquisition. But who could be doing the buying? And I think that you can probably throw a dart in most large cap pharma companies and say they will be doing the buying guy. Even some of these, bio, Vertex, for example, which I think is the second largest or the first largest holding the IBB. It's a $100 billion company. Gilead has a balance sheet that they probably could do some things. They seemingly have turned the corner. So it's not necessarily going to be big cap pharma that forays into biotech. You might see some biotech for biotech deals. With all that said, you know, Steve's done a great job at Amgen. I'll tell you, the IBB appears to be breaking out to the upside. I think it continues to go higher. Yeah, some of the current players that could be potential buyers, according to the analysts of these various, you know, Lilly, Merck, Sanofi, mm-hmm. AbbVie, GSK, I mean, you name it, they're on this list. Well, I, IBB was my final trade last night because of the charts and because of the, the dynamics that we've been talking about, I think now for a few weeks, both in biotech and the pharma sector. And it's interesting how in the past when Gilead had money to spend, it was actually an overhang to the stock because people were made, waiting for them to make a bad acquisition. Um, we talked about where, you know, you can make an argument that BMY has uh, been Pfizer light. In other words, they had a terrible 2023. And there's some similar concerns about where's the growth coming from? Where's the next meal? Uh, and I think this is a case where uh, between rotation, valuation, balance sheet, and catalysts ahead, and some pipeline, uh, why not? Yeah, I, I do think to continue this theme, this is definitely something you want to be looking at in 2024. Um, with interest rates coming down, it is going to help all that M&A activity. Um, and I, I would actually look at something like an ETF. You want to make sure you have all those major players in there, because as much as we like something um, like these companies that are doing really well with their obesity drugs, there's a lot of other healthcare companies that are, are a lot lower valuation and did not do as well last year. And I think you want to take a look at some of those as well. So, so picking up where Courtney just left off. So the IBB is probably potentially going to be the acquirers. The acquiree is going to be the XBI, right, potentially. So usually whenever you have an M&A, the acquirer trades down, the acquiree trades up. I would rather be a buyer of the ETF, the XBI, the small cap biotech uh, ETF. I think for all of us here, it's very difficult to pick the winner. I'd rather pick a bunch of targets, to Courtney's point. There is the danger, too, that, you know, some of these big cap farm, like a Pfizer, for instance, gave that forecast right back in December. Very disappointing mainly because even with the siege and acquisition, revenues year on year would decline. Mm-hmm. So even with m and it's like they're desperate mm-hmm. for something to plug the hole. Well, they're, they're, they're paying up for it. And one of the reasons why I bought Pfizer higher than it is today is, is because I saw how they spent a windfall that came from COVID. I mean, it's not like they just caught them by surprise. They spent $30 billion on a pipeline that, you know, the question is, when does it start reaping some rewards and did they overpay? And, and that gets back to, again, I, I, you know, Gilead, when they had to overpay to get into on Oncology, um, I think, was an overhang for the stock. That's the other danger, mm-hmm. right? If they have enough cash on their balance sheets, it's enough to hang themselves right. with, which we have seen time and time again, except that in this case, biotech stocks have really taken a beating. So at least the asset prices are lower. Yeah, and not that I'm the CFO of Eli Lilly, but here's an opportunity to use your stock. But you look a- like one. Eli Lilly? Yeah, I don't know. Do you think I look like a stately? You look very Is that a compliment? No. stately. Yeah, for sure. No, you didn't mean well, it that way. Why would I have so happy happy New Year guy. Yeah. Use your stock as currency and buy something. Eli, now's the time to do it. I mean, if you think about the run that that stock's had. So, yes, there are a number of companies out there. But to your point, it also reeks of desperation because their pipelines are coming to a close. 
Meantime, options traders placing bets of their own on the biotech space. Mike Coe has the action. Mike, what are you looking at? I was looking at Acadia Pharmaceuticals. So this is basically a two-drug company. This one has moved around quite sharply on a court case, basically related to a patent for their lead drug. We saw a lot of activity in the calls. It traded six times its average daily call volume. That was the result of an institutional trader rolling up from the January 26 calls up to the 31s. They were actually selling those 31 strike calls. The stock popped recently when they got a summary judgment on one of those patent cases. The seller of these calls obviously believes that the upside is probably limited to about 30, 31 bucks. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, they will be presenting at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference next week. Yep, that's a big event. Uh, Mike, thank you, Mike Coe. Coming up, T-Mobile kicking off the new year on the right foot. The stock trading back at highs it has not seen in more than 15 years. But can the gains last? We'll debate that. And pedal to the metal. Auto sales may have reaccelerated in 2023, but 2024 could be a bumpy road ahead for the sector. We will explain why. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a buzzkill on SoFi, down nearly 14% today, its biggest one-day drop since August 2021. The pullback coming after KBW downgraded the name to underperform and cut its price target by 13%. Analysts saying the stock's recent run-up, up over 60% from its November lows, may be overdone. Uh, the SoFi drop having ripple effects across the fintech space. Shares of Affirm, Block, Robinhood, and PayPal all posting outsized losses. Specifically, the analyst said 15 to 20% Downside risk almost took care of that in one day's decline here. It's pretty, here it's pretty amazing. I mean, the runs have been, again, if you look at Robinhood for the last two and a half years, it's gone nowhere. If you look at it over the last year, it's had some pretty big moves. Now, with that said, I still think this is a stock, Robinhood specifically, you want to play from the long side. Affirm, not so much. I think the business model is flawed. But Robinhood going forward, I think they might have some tailwinds. So, yes, it sold off today, I think, 60 cents or so on an $11 stock. That's a lot. But I think this is a stock you'd rather be long than short. You know, the, the, the downgrade was a function of valuation and risk. Um, and so, again, they, they're pointing to a, you know, a, a premium valuation in a space when they're barely profitable, if at all. And, and so I think the risk dynamic is one that bothers me more than anything. And it's just about also who their core client is, where they are in super prime. It's been a big part of their business, also a higher rate environment and, and funding dynamics. But um, I, I read that this was a valuation that was more just yeah, this company's not cheap, and yeah. we're downgrading. Meantime, shares of T-Mobile topping the tape today. The stock trading at levels not seen since the Metro PCS IPO in 2007. The stock now up eight straight days. Verizon and AT&T also starting the year with gains. Can the rally continue, or is it time to hang up <laughs> on the tele- telecom <laughs> trade? Again, this is maybe part of the rotation, although T-Mobile has seen a, a nice run uh, at the end of the year. So to answer your question, I wouldn't hang it. Stay on the line here. And we've talked about this stock forever. I mean, John Ledger's watching right now. He's not there anymore, but he's done a remark. He did a remarkable job. And the legacy that he's left is moving forward. And I, maybe it's not an all-time high. It's damn close to your point. Valuation has been a concern for the last five years. And seemingly the stock is impervious. T-Mobile's a winner here. Yeah, it, uh- well, guy started off saying about John Ledger. John Ledger is the one who took them from out of the uh, out of the peripheral and into the main spotlight. It outperforms both uh, telephone and Verizon. I, I don't think you. I heard you mention the Starlink uh, JV that they're doing, right? So the Starlink is good because that's the crown jewel of SpaceX. So Starlink did ten billion dollars in in sales this year. Everyone wants some sort of a partnership with Starlink. This is the way to get a piece 
of that SpaceX through T-Mobile. They're matching up with global companies. T-Mobile has it here. Is telephone like the floor lingo for AT&T because mm-hmm. of the ticker T? Uh, letter T. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I was, uh, you know, I think Mike Seifert deserves a lot of credit for what's going on here, too. I mean, think about I've been here for a while now. I, I mean, you know, and this is a guy that re- really invested in a network and was well ahead of the game on 5G. I mean, it put T-Mobile so far ahead. Um, I think that's part of the story here. As someone that's been a T-Mobile customer since 2000, excuse me, 1999. Wow. When it was many. Yeah. What yeah. Was when it I, it because T-Mobile. it was Omni's rotary. Point. It was Omni point because I could get GSM over in Europe. But again, global company. Look at them. There you go. It was like this with his phone. Yeah, yeah, was, oh, he like, like Radar was. O'Reilly. Blue horseshoe. Yeah. Um, coming up, GM walking <laughs> in its best sales year since before the uh, COVID. So why is the stock down? We'll look under the hood next. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Auto sales kicking into high gear at the end of 2023 with major players like GM and Toyota seeing a big jump in fourth quarter numbers. The industry on track to notch its best year sales since before the pandemic. Couldn't tell by looking at the stock, so Phil Lebeau joins us with the numbers. Phil. Hi, Melissa. What have you done for me lately is what a lot of investors say when it comes to the auto stocks. And we'll explain why General Motors shares were under pressure today, despite the fact that it picked up market share in the U.S. in 2023. Take a look at the December sales numbers and a couple of things stand out. First of all, Toyota up 15 percent. We'll talk about their hybrids in a bit because the number of sales, the growth in hybrids in December was astounding. Hyundai up 5%, GM there you see a fractional increase. For the fourth quarter, GM sales were actually down 7.3% compared to the third quarter. So as you take a look at shares of General Motors, that's a little bit of what investors were digesting today and saying, okay, not real crazy about that. Why didn't they have the same growth there? There's the full year market share, 16.3%. They pick up three tenths of a percentage point. And then with Toyota, listen to this. The December hybrid sales for Toyota up 63%. One out of every three vehicles sold by Toyota last month was a hybrid. It's red hot. That market is where Toyota dominates, and they're taking advantage of the consumer pivoting towards hybrid vehicles. In terms of overall sales, as you mentioned, Melissa, 2023 was the best year since 2019. And what you're noticing here, 15.5 million, there are some people saying we could go over 16 million next year. As for Ford, you notice I didn't talk about their uh, December sales. That's because we get them tomorrow morning, Melissa. One thing we do know for sure when it comes to Ford, the F-150, best-selling vehicle in the U.S. once again, as it has been for 47 straight years. Melissa, back to you. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. Um, Courtney, where do you stand on, on autos? Value... They've been terrible stocks. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's there's actually a lot of really interesting stuff that came out today. Um, obviously, when you're looking at some of the trends of people are going towards hybrids, actually less towards EVs, I thought was fascinating. There's all this the same day that a headline came out that BYD actually now just exceeded Tesla in number of sales. And China, I think, is actually the number one exporter of cars, which I kind of fascinating. And there seems to be this trend where U.S. isn't really picking up to the EVs, I think, as much as people would hope they would. And I think that's the big trend that I saw here. 
where when you're looking at all these car companies, like Ford is one who will get their numbers tomorrow, are really shifting all of their resources into EV. I think that's the question is, should they be doing that or should we be looking more into hybrids? I think some of these trends are kind of interesting to look at. It, it, there's so many fascinating big picture dynamics for the auto industry right now. If you think about the way the auto companies have restructured and the goal is to try to separate EV from uh, internal combustion engines. Meanwhile, you've got BYD uh, and Tesla that are vertically integrated companies. And that's really what's seen as their success model, why they can move quickly, adjust quickly. Uh, and meanwhile, here's the hybrid that Tesla doesn't have any exposure to. I mean, well, seemingly they do, but um, they're not producing hybrids. It's all about the, the hybrid dynamic, at least for what we heard about Toyota, what we heard about with BYD, what we're hearing about with, with GM and Chevy. So um, that's the fascinating thing that's shaping up here. Are those guys going to be able to pick up speed on the competitive landscape as BYD is doing on Tesla in the you know, pure energy place? Uh, how long do these guys, uh, the heads of Ford and GM, have? Well, I mean, the and Ford gals. and yes. gals. I meant guys generally, not The yes. Ford C is, CEO is a Georgetown grad, so I give him a long leash, as Absolutely. they say. With that said, you make a good point. I mean, what did Phil say? Ford F-150 is the best-selling car for the last 30 years-ish. 30 years ago, Ford was an $11.5 stock. It's an $11.5 stock again today. So that's an indictment of the company without question. And Tesla, real quick, that pennant formation we talked about yesterday seemingly have broken to the downside, something to watch. Yeah, it, this, is, this is a hybrid. It, it should have always been hybrid. It shouldn't have been ICE cars and then going into EV. It had to be a hybrid market. It's going to be interesting to see if Ford and GM actually take a, a page out of Toyota's notebook because Toyota played this perfectly. And when you look at Tesla, Tesla, it, Tesla was up 120% a year ago, 52 weeks. And the problem is, is that they have, to Tim's point, that's an EV. Ford and GM can't compete with that. They can compete with hybrid. I don't know how much of a pivot they're going to have to do to be competitive. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn, Timothy. Tyson, it's been a long time since chicken's something you can rally behind. And I tell you what, it's been a tough couple of years for Tyson. Look at that chart. Look at that valuation. Get there. I can't remember the last time it exactly. was the final trade. 2020, 2024, year of the chicken. T-Mobile, that's going to be my final trade for everything we talked about a couple of blocks ago. Courtney. A VHT, we've talked a lot about healthcare. I think with rates coming down, looking at M&A, it's definitely a category to look at. Take a look here. Guy you were saying in a break, Brennan Othman just got called up. Pitlick's out for a couple weeks. You know, that might be the Time. spark we need Time. at we MSG. Need that guy. I agree with you. Bristol Myers, no. Thank you for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.